Well, let's turn to the book of Romans, if you would. Romans chapter 1. And we'll be launching uh, into verse 16 in a bit, and I will explain the sculpture that's in front of me in just a bit. But before we do either of those, let me just say a, a couple things about some feedback that we've been getting from you over the last week. It has to do with the polling of the priesthood that we're going to be doing soon, two weeks from today. And so this is, this is very important. There have been some good questions about how we phrase the first question in this congregational poll that we'll be taking on the 24th. You got these questions by email uh, this week, if you remember, many of you did. It has to do with the first question, the one that reads, while we continue to seek healing and reconciliation, and we're really asking you to pray about this, and to take action based on what we've learned from last year's controversy, in light of what you've been hearing from God during these 40 days, do you feel we should put what happened behind us and move on? The phrase that we're looking at is put what happened behind us and move on. That communicates some true things and things that are not true. As you can imagine, there have been a number of drafts of these questions back and forth between uh, the staff and the elders. And based on all this, I composed uh, a final draft, which the elders approved as well as the staff. But as I said in my presentation last Saturday, God only is wise and not one of us is smarter uh, than all of us. And you uh, should have seen some of the earlier versions of these questions. But um, there's one email that summed up what a number of you were thinking. And I know that I'm speaking for staff in session that it reflects what we huh, wanted to communicate, but didn't do it maybe as effectively as we could have. Here's the email, and this email is a model of feedback that is honest and honoring, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for the email regarding the upcoming poll and the three questions that will be included in the poll. In regards to the first question, I am not sure that it is totally clear what is meant by the question, nor that everyone reading the question will understand it in the same way. My confusion comes from the ambiguity of the statement, put what happened behind us and move on. Then he goes on to say this, in one sense, and we couldn't agree more with, with this, in one sense, we are who we are as a result of all the events of our past, and therefore it will always be a part of who we are as a church. And we don't want to just ditch it, pretend it didn't happen, not learn from it, not continually come to the throne because of it. And so he's right, and therefore it will be part of who we are as a church. I wonder if a better wording might be, are we as a congregation ready to move forward in a spirit of forgiveness and proceed with the seven steps listed in the recommendations given by Brian Myers? Then he goes on to explain just a little bit. In my mind, a yes to the question as it stands, should we just move on and ditch the past, sounds too much like we're just dismissing the whole thing. For that reason, I think people may vote no, even though they feel like the healing process is underway and we should proceed with the steps outlined last Sunday. Then he concludes with this. If the question remains as it is stated in the email, I think it would be very helpful to give the congregation more details as to what is meant by a yes or a no vote. This email shows, and the other comments that we've been getting, that you as a priesthood have been seeking God's guidance. And we're grateful for that. And that is a good thing, and we thank you. And we will work at rephrasing this question with uh, that in mind. Uh, any other recommendations would be welcome, though, of course, we need to finalize this soon. It's just two weeks. And again, the poll will be two weeks from today, the day of our turkey dinner. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, the one who submits the winning question for number one will get a free turkey. <laughs> so not really. Well, I don't know. Maybe we'll see. But please continue to pray. We are very grateful that you're taking this so seriously.
Well, let's turn again, if you haven't already, to the book of Romans, to God's inerrant scripture. Thank goodness, right? In case you were wondering, these are words that cannot be improved on, so don't try. No recommendations for changes to these words are welcome. Though this is one of the rare churches where that is true these days. Where we take God at his word, literally. As we'll see today. So the sculpture that's in front of me is by a friend of mine. His name is Trace Guthrie. He does this professionally. He's been doing it for decades. I buried his father 35 years ago, and he gave me this sculpture instead of an honorarium at the very beginning of my ministry, just after seminary. And I've kept it in each of my offices ever since, in each church that we've served, uh, prominently displayed as it is in my office upstairs because the Father heart of God is at the heart of the gospel. It's the, at the heart of everything, including the creation. It's why Christ came, to bring us to God, as it says in 1 Peter, to the Father. For those of you who might not be able to see it, it's the prodigal son uh, in the arms of his father. It's what's most compelling, what, what's most compelling about it, to me anyway, is the father's expression of sheer, you know, gratitude and joy. But also, the degree of the prodigal's repentance, prostrate helplessly in the father's arms. It's the very picture of the gospel of repentance and loving kindness. That's it in a nutshell. It's the goal of the gospel, the arms of the Father. And, and, and those arms are what's going to, uh, uh, what's awaiting us next Sunday. This week we'll tee it up, and next week uh, the stage is going to be empty except for what's in front of me. Today we'll set the stage for next week's quiet service of reflection and repentance in the arms of his loving kindness. It's a mystery how a God who is holy, holy, holy could have such mercy. But uh, there it is. It's at the heart of the book of Romans, which is all about, really, the very process that we're in as a congregation because Romans takes us from repentance to revival, from ruin to revolution, as we've seen, through the mercies of God at Calvary. And so we've got a considerable head start at doing this here on the, our 27th day of seeking God's guidance in a posture of repentance. Romans is all about the mercies of God to his glory, which is why in Romans chapter 12, putting this all in context, when Paul goes from doctrine to practice, he sums up all the doctrine by saying, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He's talking about the mercies of God, as we've seen in the last 11 chapters. He's saying the mercies of God, in a lot of ways, sum up those 11 chapters. Romans 12, 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, to respond with your lives. So here in chapter 1, let's plunge into his mercies. And they will be measured to begin with by the degree of our depravity. So far, we've worked through Paul's introduction, verses 1 to 17 of chapter 1. We've seen, really, the impossible dream of the gospel unveiled. That was verses 1 to 8. And then we saw 
the uh, gospel unleashed, that's verses 9 to 17, all to whet our appetite for what we're going to do next. Today we'll launch into the first section of the book of Romans, the first eight chapters, Romans 1 to 8, where we see really the gospel uh, unpacked. Paul does this in three parts. In part one, he shows us man's moral state. That's chapter 1, verse 16 to 320. And then in part two, we see really God's master stroke, 321 to 521. And then finally, in part three, we see our miracle mindset, 61 to 817. Man's moral state, what is that? Universal wickedness. God's master stroke, faith righteousness. And then, really, Roman number three, our miracle mindset that we are freed from sin. Our miracle mindset, we'll see, is that we've been loosed from the flesh who used to be who we are, and now we're linked to the Spirit. And now there's this miracle mindset that can transform our lives as we set our minds on the things of the Spirit as revealed in the Word. Secret of transformation. So in Romans 1 to 3, Paul begins by exposing our moral state, Roman numeral 1, because we need to acknowledge that we are nothing, like we saw Dulcinea did, so that he can then be everything. It's a, it's a sweeping indictment that Paul does here of universal wickedness, of total depravity, that it's not limited to cultures or nations or groups or people. No, it's all the people. When we're done with these chapters, we won't end up with, you know, all the really bad guys. It's not my mother or my father, not my stranger or my neighbor, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. What Paul does here takes the form of a logical argument, where in verses 16 and 17, they sum up the verses that come before, and then they really sum up the verses that come afterwards. Paul's a master of transitions, and the same two verses do both. In verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, we see first, Roman numeral 1, the proposition that's n- that nobody's good except by faith that all good comes from God. And then we see the proof, Roman numeral 2, that God's wrath exposes the evil in everybody. First, the proposition, starting in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's saying in it. From God, the righteousness of of God is revealed, not in and of ourselves. Such is our wickedness that righteousness comes only from him and in him. That is, nobody's good, except by faith that all good, starting with righteousness, comes from God. And then we have the proof. God's wrath exposes the evil in everybody. Three times in this passage, Paul says essentially that the wrath of God is revealed in that God gave them over. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their flesh. 
Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. He's, he says this three times because he's a preacher and he's making a point. And that is this, the, the verses we're going through today are all about God giving them over. That is what you might call the wrath of his withdrawal. The wrath of his withdrawal, where he starts to back away by giving them over, by removing what we call his restraining grace. That is all he does to protect us from ourselves. We'll see today, as C.S. Lewis said, you've probably heard this, that, that we will either say, thy will be done, or he'll have to say, all right then, have it your way. I'll give you what you're insisting on. He does this in his severe mercy, the wrath of his withdrawal, to bring us to our senses. And it starts in verse 18 when he withdraws the light of his truth. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. It starts with the withdrawal of his light. The first consequence of pulling away from God is that you turn from the light of God's truth into, point A in your notes, intellectual folly. All truth is God's truth. We don't have any of it. All wisdom comes from God. So much so that if he withdraws it, as he withdraws it, we become fools. We see this when he withdraws the light of his truth. Verse 22. Again, professing to be wise, they became fools. And how does that show in folly? They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then he says the same in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Professing to be wise in and of themselves, like we hopefully will never do, though we still do, they became fools. The natural consequence of our pulling away from God is intellectual folly. You don't want to acknowledge the truth he's saying that's clearly, I've clearly revealed you to you through the creation. All right, then have it your way. I'll give you more of the lie that you've been choosing, and let's see where that gets you. And the case in point that Paul focuses on here is the creation. God gives them over, really, to make a god of the creation. It's a folly that leads to idolatry. How so? Well, it happens in every generation. We could spend much time here. The, the animal rights movement, for instance, in its extreme form anyway, is based on a philosophy. It's more like a theology of a, a religion that virtually worships animals. Sometimes they'll give their lives for these animals, like we ought only to do for God. 
The environmental movement in its extreme form is just the same. Many tree huggers do it literally out of religious devotion. It's pantheism. They're devoted to nature, to the creation and not the creator. Secular humanism makes a god of man, a god of choice, a god of my truth, a god of me. And you're thinking, a god of me? If you really knew me, you'd say professing to be wise, you'd become a fool. Darwinian evolution is another example. They can defend it like a religion, and they do, many of them. It's an idolatry that is sheer folly. Chance evolution without God. I have a book on my shelves called Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. It's since become a classic by Michael Denton. It's one of many that we could reference. It's subtitled, New Developments in Science Are Challenging Orthodox Darwinianism. It's written by a molecular biologist who's quite well known in that world, a man who's, I'm not even sure he's a Christian, but, and it's definitely not a Christian publisher. It's Adler and Adler, a well-respected publishing house out of Bethesda, Maryland. He titled the second to the last chapter, sums it all up by titling it The Puzzle of Perfection. He says, the intuitive feeling that pure chance could never have achieved the degree of complexity and ingenuity so ubiquitous in nature has been a continuing source of skepticism ever since the publication of The Origin of Species. And throughout the past century, there has always existed a significant minority of first-rate biologists who have never been able to bring themselves to accept the validity of uh, the Darwinian claims. Perhaps no other area of molecular biology in no other area of molecular biology is the challenge exposed by, posed by the extreme complexity and ingenuity of biological adaptations more apparent than in the fascinating new molecular world of the cell. To grasp the reality of life as it has been revealed by molecular biology, we must magnify a microscopic cell a thousand million times until it is 20 kilometers in diameter and resembles a giant airship large enough to cover a great city like New York or London. What we would then see would be an object of unparalleled complexity and adaptive design. On the surface of the cell, we would see millions of openings, like portholes of a vast spaceship, opening and closing to allow a continual stream of materials to flow in and out. If we were to enter one of those openings, we would find ourselves in a world of supreme technology and bewildering complexity. He goes into that world in this book in the most amazing way. And he concludes in the last chapter by saying this. It is the sheer universality of perfection, the fact that everywhere we look, to whatever depth we look, we find an elegance and ingenuity of an absolutely transcending quality. It is this which so mitigates against the idea of chance evolution. Is it really credible that random processes could have constructed a reality, the smallest element of which, a functional protein or gene, is complex beyond our creative capacities? A reality which is the very antithesis of chance, which excels in every sense anything produced by the intelligence of man. Alongside the level of ingenuity and complexity exhibited by the molecular machinery of life, even our most advanced technologies appear clumsy. Truly, they became futile in their speculations 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. Reminds me of what G.K. Chesterton once said. He said, it is often supposed that when people stop believing in God, they believe in nothing. Alas, it is worse than that. When they stop believing in God, they believe in anything. <laughs> Which is right out of Romans 1. If you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. Professing to be wise, they became fools. There's so much more here, but we, we must move on. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over, verse 24, gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That is point B in your notes. It's not just to intellectual folly that he gives them over. It's to moral depravity. And then he says it again in verse 26. God gave them over to degrading passions. And then again in verse 28. God gave them over to a depraved mind, which means the depraved intellectual designs and desires that were driving them all along apart from his uh, restraining grace. Paul's moving here from foolish thinking to foolish living. He's been talking about their heads and now he moves to their hearts. So, so why does he go from one to the other? From intellectual folly to moral depravity. Why does he move from the ivory tower, you might say, of the thoughts to the gutter of the heart? More often than not, these philosophical doctrines come from immoral desires. They believe the folly because deep down it justifies their depravity. That is very simply, without God in the picture, you can live like hell. The idea is that God gave them over to lust that, truth be told, were fueling a desire that there be no God all along. <laughs> the fleshly passions that drive false religions in depraved minds. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He was looking back at what was going on inside of him before he became a Christian. He said, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, our philosophy was essentially an instrument of liberation. Liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to, objected to the morality because it in, uh, interfered with our sexual freedom. And so by our philosophy, we justified our erotic revolt. It's like Otis Huxley said, in his latter days, in a moment of unusual candor, he was a very influential philosopher, a thinker who, who, who espoused what's called a nihilistic philosophy of life. He, uh, his writings were led the drug culture of the 60s and much else. At the end of his life, he said, I had motives for my philosophy. I wanted a world without morality. Consequently, I assume my philosophy to be true and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. This is what drives a good part of the abortion industry and all the sophisticated arguments for freedom of choice because a good part of it is about sexual freedom. There's so much more here, but God gives them over to the desires that have been fueling their thinking in their ivory towers to uh, depraved behaviors. And then according to the next verse, he gives them over to the consequences of those behaviors. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. 
For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons, here it is, the due penalty of their error. The bottom line is this. God gives us over more and more intellectually, morally, judicially, educationally, socially, sexually. He does that with our culture as we descend from the ivory tower to the gutter to get our attention. Until it comes to the point where they receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error. He says, all right then, have it your way. Is this what you really want? And we're seeing this in our day perhaps more than any, just how true this is in so many ways. 70 million Americans now have sexually transmitted diseases, as do 30% of college students and one in four of teenage girls. After decades of warning, I'm afraid we're not getting the point. HIV is not getting the attention it did 30 years ago, but it hasn't gone away. In fact, quite the opposite. There's now an alarming growth in the rate of infections underway. And as a result, our whole society is being filled with unrighteousness. Verse 29, moving on. And the Internet is only making all these sins worse that Paul goes on to list. Maybe more than in the history of humanity, we've been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And today, it's even worse than that, than Paul's day. These days, not only do they give hearty approval to those who practice these things, they give hearty disapproval to those who disapprove of practicing them, who disagree with them. There's a fury of disapproval against us. Syndicated columnist Charles Krauthammer in Time Magazine put it this way. As part of the vast social project of moral leveling, it is not enough for the deviant to be normalized. No, the normal must now be found to be deviant. And you can't help but agree with John Wenham, a theologian who said the marvel in the biblical view of things, is not that men die for their sins, but that we remain alive in spite of them. It's only the mercy of God. I would have long since nuked the human race, which, of course, would have included me. It would have included me just as much who I am in the flesh. Which is one of many reasons why in the next verse, in verse 1, point C in your notes, Paul turns to the, essentially, the churchgoers of his day, and he says, therefore you. He turns the tables on them. It's like, 
They were in the peanut gallery cheering him on, and he turns around and says, therefore, you are without excuse. And you think, what? I thought we were talking about them. <laughs> no, it's me. It's me. It's me alone. Standing in need of prayer. Apart from his spirit in me, I know not what yet I would become. Well, we have it right there in Romans 1, what we would become in our failure. Next week, we'll see why Paul turns the tables on us, how he exposes one of the characteristic flesh patterns of God's people. But equally, we will see how in his mercy, he can just as quickly turn the tables again when we truly repent of our sin and turn to him. Especially, most powerfully, when we do it individually for 40 days in a posture of repentance and then all together corporately in a quiet service of reflection and repentance. That kind of thing is really unusual in the American church. We're laying the foundation for the future. Let me close with this. We'll see next week that the marvel is not only that we remain alive in spite of our sins, as Wenham said, but that God should still be so rich in kindness and forbearance and patience, as we'll see in chapter 2, verse 4, that being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together in Christ. The marvel is that this one who produced this, you know, sheer universality of perfection should still have such great compassion given the universality of our sin. The marvel is that we can put the past behind us. Not in the way it sounded like in the question I mentioned at the beginning, but in the way that Paul meant when he said, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Which can happen both individually and congregationally when we come together like we have been. The marvel is that in simple repentance, we can find the arms of his loving kindness, his abundance, his fullness, his deliverance through Jesus Christ who died for us. Amen. We'll have the worship leaders come forward. Paul began by saying that they did not honor him as God or give thanks. He said this because thanksgiving is in many ways the kindergarten of our response to God in light of the cornucopia of the creation that's around us. And so, why don't we close today by thanking Him?